Um, we're going to pick up on this outline that says worship talk number two. If you don't have one of those, I think there's some on the back table, right? Anybody missing one of those? Forgot yours? Okay. Don't be shy. Go back and get one. You'll want to have it to look on. <clears throat> look for the one that says worship talk number two. Picking up on the stuff about hymns and why we sing hymns in RUF for benefit of the podcast. I apologize, my battery ran out somewhere during the talk last time. But I'll tell you this, um, there's a much fuller discussion of these points about hymns. These are sort of some of the points I make when I give this talk about hymns, but I, I usually make a lot more. And there's a couple places online that you can get a fuller version of this, this stuff about hymns. One is at covenantseminary.edu, and there's a place where you can listen to different lectures online for free. And if you search my name, T-W-I-T, you'll come up with one that I did on why we still need hymns in a postmodern world. you also find one I did about jazz, learning to glorify God through enjoying jazz. So if that's of interest to you, you can check that out too. Um, you can also go to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, to their website, which is sbts.edu. Find your way to the Worship Institute, which is kind of a subsection of their website there. And I just gave some lectures up there over spring break, um, and I spread the talk out over two days as far as hymns. And I also did a, um, a talk on engaging the emerging church with hymns. So if that's of interest to you to think about some thoughts about the emerging church and places where I would commend and places where I would um, maybe offer some critique or engagement and how hymns can help us, I think. Um, you can hear that, too. So I don't know where it cut off. Um, I'm hoping that it just cut off like the first couple points we made about hymns because those are out there. Those thoughts are out there in fuller forms anyway. So let's pick it up at the, big, the bottom of the front of the uh, talk number two on the, the last um, bullet point there, which actually I, I made this point for real briefly, I guess, during the worship this morning. C.H. Spurgeon, you guys know who C.H. Spurgeon was? Great Baptist preacher, lived in the 1800s. Um, many regard him as one of the finest preachers in the English language. If you've never read anything by Charles Spurgeon, I uh, highly recommend that you check him out. Um, there's lots of his sermons available online, you can, you can hear. Um, but he said this one time, When I cannot understand anything in the Bible, it seems as though God has set a chair there for me at which to kneel and worship, and that the mysteries are intended to be an altar of devotion. I think that's really good advice. And I think one of the, the reasons that I love hymns so much, and I think a lot of people love the hymns, is they don't provide nice, easy little answers. They don't reduce Christianity down to a couple little simple things. Now, there are some that do, but in general, the hymns that have survived are hymns that wrestle with the paradoxes of the Christian faith. Um, things like, and can it be that thou should die for me? See, at one level... You go, okay, yeah, that's what the gospel is, that Christ dies um, for sinners. But what Wesley's sort of picking up on there is just this disjuncture between God dying for sinners. That should never cease to amaze us, that God would die for sinners. Or as Augustus Toplady um, says it in another hymn that we sing sometimes, O love incomprehensible that made thee bleed for me, the judge of all, has suffered death to set his prisoner free. 
I, I think I, I made this point the other day. I mean, in what strange universe do judges die to set prisoners free? But, but you know, how, how do you how do you get over that? How do you sort of just take that and say, okay, great, you know, I'm going to sort of go on. Um, I think it was A.W. Tozer. I read a, a lot by him in my early days of my Christian life. And he said, you know, too often we just sort of have this idea that the gospel is this wonderful thing. Jesus does all the dying. And we say, okay, great, thanks, you know, and um, pat ourselves on the back for making such a wise decision to accept that and then sort of going off on our merry way. Um, but true Christianity is always connecting the dots between what Jesus did and the way we live. Um, it, it, and, and really growing as a Christian is getting the reality of Jesus' life and death in our behalf and bringing that into every area of life. Tim Keller, pastor up at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, says that meditation is thinking a truth in and then thinking it out. It's thinking it in and then thinking out the implications for all of life. And the hymns, I think, are really an opportunity to do that, to meditate on these, the, really the, kind of these paradoxical questions. Why would God die for me? And, and if that's true, what does that mean for the, for the way I live my life, for the way I make plans, for the way I fear, for the way I um, doubt him? You know, all, all these sorts of things. Trying to connect that truth, and can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Connecting that to every issue that you have. So that you're not just thinking in terms of, well, gosh, I'm really just, I'm really going to try to quit looking at pornography on the internet. Well, what does the fact that Jesus lived and died in your place have to say about that? I'm convinced that that issue really is more about intimacy, false intimacy, than it is about lust. Honestly, and that's why that book that um, was recommended earlier, False Intimacy by Harry Schomburg, is a really helpful book. Um, and he talks about how for a lot of people, their lives are sort of filled with control. Control is their idol. Right? They want control in their life, and they basically avoid anything in their life that would make them feel out of control. The problem with sort of pursuing a life of control is often, you know, to, to, to try to live a life of control means that you usually are unmoved by much of anything. I, I mean, I experienced this myself. I had a friend of mine get murdered my senior year in high school, a guy who was going to be my roommate in college. And I just shut down emotionally. I think I was already, had sort of learned that the way you deal with things is you shut down emotionally. But when that happened, it really locked me into that pattern. Um, so for five years, I didn't cry. And I thought that I really was exhibiting the fruit of self-control. Um, what I didn't realize is, if it's really the fruit of self-control and not my sinful sort of shutting down of my emotions, then I'm going to also have love and joy and all the fruits. See, in Galatians 5, it doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit, plural. Like, you, as long as you've got a couple of them, you're doing pretty good. It says fruit, singular. If you don't have all of them, then what you may think of is the fruit of the Spirit may actually be your sinful flesh. If you want to explore that further, I recommend Jonathan Edwards' book, Charity and Its Fruits, um, or also Tim Keller's tapes that he has at Redeemer.com on the fruit of the Spirit. Anyway, um, so you have this kind of issue of just sort of shutting down emotionally and yet wanting to feel alive, and so often um, it's sort of a shortcut to intimacy, but an intimacy where you feel in control. Of course, the reality is in marriage, some of the most wonderful, you know, experiences sexually are not where you're in control. In the plot life, it always seems that um, control is what you want. In reality, it's, it's really not that exciting. Um, and so, anyway, you know, thinking through that and why am I going to that, but then connecting the dots to, well, if Jesus lived and died in my place, then if I feel like I don't have any intimacy in my life, it, you know, why am I living for 
a life of control, if Jesus lived and died in my place, what do I have to fear? What do I really have to be afraid of? Right? So the hymns, see, the hymns do connect to pornography. They do connect to all this stuff. Because the reason that you run after all that stuff is because you've forgotten that what you're trying to get through those idols, you already have in the gospel. And the way to bring healing to your soul and to let go of those things that seem so beautiful is to, for Jesus to become more beautiful and believable to where you look at this thing in your hand and say, who could do this? Um, there's this great passage in Isaiah 44 where it says, um, you know, the eyes of a deluded heart um, you know, are blinded. The person who pursues idols um, has this deluded heart that's blinded, and he can't even look at this thing in his right hand and say it's a lie. Sometimes we get so trapped by our idols that we can't even see that they're a lie. Tim Keller says that idols create delusional fields. That when you start to put your hope in something, it ends up filling your life with false ideas. Um, great example. Look, here, look in your Bible real quick at Isaiah 30, 15. Don't worry, we'll get back to him here in a second. <clears throat> Isaiah 30, 15 says, This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, No, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. You said, We will ride off on swift horses. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one, at the threat of five. You will all flee away till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountain, like a banner on a hill. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Excuse me. Now, if you back up into chapter 30, you find that what Israel is doing is because of a threat um, from Assyria, they are making an alliance with Egypt. Now, Egypt is sort of the slavery that God you know, brought them out of, remember? Now they're going right back to the slavery that God delivered them from because they don't really trust that God can take care of them. In reality, they're trusting to their own ability to make military alliances. They're trusting their own ability to take care of themselves rather than God. And what God says is when you don't trust me, when you don't rest and trust in me, your life will be filled with irrational fear. So that's, what he, that's what this verse uh, 16 and, and 17 is about. Um, if you are trying to put your hope in horses and armies, then what's going to happen is at the sight of, a, of one person, your whole army of a thousand men is going to run away. It's a real graphic image for irrational fear. If your life is filled with irrational fear, I, 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 would, I would bet that there is an idol at the bottom of it. There's something you're putting your hope in that you know in the deepest part of your heart isn't really going to work. But how are you going to let go of it? Because it's like, gosh, it's really scary to let go of this thing. It's like, you know, it's like gambling addictions. I mean, the, the casinos know that they need to let you win every once in a while to keep you at it. The, the idols that don't ever work for you are really easy to, to discard. It's the idols that work every once in a while. It's, you know, I mean, a lot of the time, by your charm, you can get friends. A lot of time, you can get what you want um, by sort of your manipulative games that you play. But not always. Um, there are times when it really fears you, fills you with fear. So all that to say is 
Meditation, and, and I think even the hymns, are an opportunity to try to connect those dots. And, and I really think that, um, that we, we are so far from understanding what it means to think a biblical truth in and then think out its implications that we need the hymn writers to kind of take us by the hand and teach us what that's about. And you see, so many of the hymns actually were born out of a hymn writer meditating on scripture or a particular truth. And so what you have in the hymns is you have, here's somebody <coughs> meditating on this, on this truth. And, um, you know, what, what a hymn does is it takes its theme and it develops it. Somebody asked me yesterday, what's the difference between a hymn and a praise chorus and a gospel song? Is there something form-wise that helps us distinguish between those? And there is. A hymn takes an idea and develops it from beginning to end. It takes you on a journey. It starts somewhere and it goes somewhere. And sometimes it develops it sort of chronologically. Here's this truth and how I first came to understand it, and here's how it works itself out in this situation, in this stage of life. And then often those hymns, the last verse is about death, about how I'll need this truth at death. Like it is well with my soul, for instance, you know, or on Jordan Stony Bank. Uh, well, Jordan Stony Bank is actually all kind of all about heaven and crossing over. Um, bad example. Uh, when I, or uh, how sweet the name Jesus sounds, you know, kind of does that, right? It kind of talks about, you know, your name sounds sweet, and yet there are times I really doubt it. Um, and then, you know, I, I mourn the weakness and the coldness of my heart and worship. But there's a day coming when I see you as you are, when I'm going to praise you as I should, right? And so it sort of holds that truth up before us and says, this truth matters for now. It matters for when you die. It mattered, you know, when you look back at your life. You know, you need to bring this truth back to there, too. Um, and so these hymns do this. They, they let us kind of look at this truth from different angles and gaze upon it and even helps us think through how do I need to apply this truth? How do I need to connect the dots between my past, my present, and my future with this truth? Um, the, the, other, the thing that, about gospel songs, and gospel songs would be things like um, Christ the Solid Rock, I stand, is not technically a hymn. Um, hymns don't have refrains or choruses. A hymn has you know, stanzas that are all the same, and yet the thought develops. A gospel song has a refrain, which sort of is the central point, and then the, the verses sort of say the same thing in different ways. But they generally don't have the kind of development of thought um, as, as does a, a, a real traditional hymn. Now, this isn't to say that gospel songs are always bad. The gospel songs emerge in the late 1800s, primarily during the evangelistic campaigns of um, D.L. Moody, uh, because in, they didn't have a lot of hymnals. And so uh, Ira Sankey, who was the song leader, he would sing the verses, and then the, the masses, the unlettered, you know, unlearned, often illiterate masses, could join in on the chorus. Right? So there's a lot of, a lot of songs that people regard as hymns that are uh, really gospel songs. And one of the things about the gospel songs is the theological... Um, sort of taste of people was changing during that time. So there's a lot of the gospel songs that don't really express so well the idea that our hope is based on God's promises. Um, and there's a lot of them that seem to just make a direct appeal to the emotions, and I would say distort what the true Christian life feels like. Uh, In the Garden would be a good example of mine. I don't really like that hymn. I think it presents a misleading view about what the Christian life usually feels like. Um, and, and there'd be other sort of late Victorian gospel songs that, especially American gospel songs, that I think are not so honest when it comes to reflecting the Christian life. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, that, you know, if you want a really good discussion of those different forms, I'd recommend a book called Praying Twice by Brian Wren, W-R-E-N. But you definitely have to spit out the bones of his book. His theology is atrocious in a lot of ways. But he's a poet, and what's really wonderful in that book, he's a poet and a hymn writer, he's not a musician, but his chapters in there on how music works on our hearts and our souls is really helpful, especially if you're not a musician because he uses language really wonderfully, but he doesn't use technical musical language because he's not a musician. So I found that really helpful. He has a whole discussion about different forms of songs, like hymns, gospel songs, choruses. Now choruses basically take an image and it's, it's sort of short and to the point, and it may be a really rich, wonderful image, right? Um, and like I said, in the Psalms, there are examples of what we might often call phrase choruses that are just short and to the point there's not really a development of thought. But what is interesting is that people that do um, sort of lead worship in settings where they're using mostly praise choruses, they will string praise choruses together in a way that it takes you on a journey. And so I'm saying it's interesting to me, the hymns already do that, and yet people that don't sing hymns have f sort of found their way back to doing that sort of thing. Um, the problem I, I guess I have when I've tried to restrict myself just to praise choruses is there's often places I want to go on that journey and I don't have choruses to help me go there. Now, I think that's changing. I think there are more choruses being written these days about suffering and about the reality of, you know, struggling. Um, but that's a more recent development, honestly. And if you do a survey, and there have been some studies done of like the top 25 praise choruses that are sung in churches. because. There's a group called CCLI where churches that use praise choruses register with this company and report the songs that they sing, and the songwriters get paid through this arrangement. So we, can, we know which songs are being sung at, at churches all across North America. And if you study, um, for instance, the top 25 praise choruses of the last 10 or 20 years, you will find that there is really almost no unpacking of what the cross is about. Um, there's much more focus on, Lord, I just want your glory. I want to see your glory. May your kingdom come. But it's really kind of, it does an end run around the cross. If the cross is mentioned, it's definitely not unpacked. There's a real lack of Trinitarian understanding that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's a lot of stuff about the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of stuff about Jesus as friend or as lover. But there's not much about sort of Trinitarian language. A lot of things that are really important biblically um, don't make much of an appearance in praise courses, at least the most popular ones. So I really think we still need these hymns because there's a lot of places we need to go, at least if the Bible is our guide, that we don't have in the courses. So, but Brian Wren, I mean, he thinks that we need to get rid of the idea of substitutionary atonement, and you know, he wants to get rid of any kind of gender language for God. There's a lot of things where I would differ with him, um, but that book's really helpful for that. Another book in helping you think about hymns and appreciate them. This is, a, you know, it's like a $45, $50 book, but if you're really into this stuff, um, I recommend a book by a guy named Watson that's called The English Hymn, A Literary and Critical Analysis. And it's the, it's the only book I know of where he will take a particular hymn writer and help you say, here are characteristics of this person's hymns. Here's the kinds of things that Isaac Watts does that makes, you know, his art of hymn writing work. But then look at Wesley. He does different things. Um, that are more characteristic of him. And look at Anne Steele. She does some other things that are characteristic of her. Anne Steele, for instance, one of my favorite hymn writers, she wrote Dear Refuge in My Weary Soul, um, That Lovely Source of True Delight. Her hymns are marked by um, really striking names that she gives to God. 
be a refuge in my weary soul. And often it's the first line of her hymn is some address to God using a name that I never would have thought of. And yet then the rest of the hymn sort of proceeds from that, from that name. And I think, again, there's a, there's a way of thinking about meditation. Um, do you think of Jesus as the one who's fairer than the Rose of Sharon? That's a biblical image. What does that mean? Have you thought of him that way today? Um, I re- I've read a very interesting book um, about this whole idea of metaphors that um, said, you know, before the Reformation, you know, the, the primary way that people understood Jesus was they regarded him as a judge. Um, you see this in all the popular kind of art of the day, in the passion plays. You know, they had these performances um, to sort of scare people into, you know, giving money to get out of purgatory. But the primary image and metaphor used of Jesus was Jesus' judge. Now, that's a true biblical metaphor. The problem is, as Calvin said once, a half-truth masquerading as a whole truth is a complete untruth. And to think that Jesus is merely a judge or only a judge really distorts the biblical witness to who Jesus is. What happens at the Reformation, this guy's arguing, um, is that when people like Luther and Calvin start to read the Bible and, and actually read it for what it's saying, they find that there are all, just an explosion of different metaphors used in Scripture. And all of a sudden, at the early, the dawn of the Reformation, you see in sort of the wood cuttings and the paintings and the sculpture in the songs, all these things, all these rich metaphors about who Jesus is. Uh, and I think the hymns do, do really well with that. I think in, in praise courses, in a lot of ways, we've kind of fallen into some rather cliched images. They're true. I mean, you know, the lamb is worthy. I mean, that's right out of the Bible. It's right out of the book of Revelation. But I think for a lot of people, they've heard that so many times that, you know, when they think about the lamb, it's not a hyperlink, hypertext, you know, where you click on it, it takes you, you know, from Genesis to Revelation, the idea of the lamb who was slain, and what does that mean? But for most people, they just say, oh, the lamb who was slain, that's Jesus. And they sing it without even thinking about it or connecting the dots. I think, um, you know, there's a lot of rich metaphors in the scriptures, which I would love to see praise choruses delve more into, and I think the hymn writers um, can give us some good um, sort of paths to follow in that regard. Um, so that's a long way of saying sort of this whole thing about about hymns and meditation. Um, yes? Watson, yeah, the English hymn, a critical introduction or a literary introduction, something like that. It's Oxford Press, and now fortunately it's in paperback, so um, you can track it down on Amazon, I'm sure. It's, it's a pretty thick book. And when he gets to Victorian hymnody, I don't like the way he does that chapter. You know, I'm not going to get into why, but it, it, well, I'll, I'll go tell you. He basically takes Darwin's book, Origin of Species, and sort of uses that and quotes from that as sort of his different subheadings. And it's a very confusing way to talk sort of about the evolution of Victorian hymnody. He was doing so great. I think he felt so overwhelmed by just how the explosion of hymns in the Victorian era that he was trying to find some way to organize the material, and he chose to use Darwin's Origin of Species, which came out right you know, during that period. I didn't find that helpful. There's another book called Abide With Me about Victorian hymns that I just got done reading. That If you read that book, Abide With Me, and you read Watson's book, you'll have a pretty good understanding of the history of hymnody. Um, I, I, I have on our website, igracemusic.com, under resources, a little paper called um, Some Books, Useful Books for Leading in Worship. And I list a lot of different books there and give a sentence or two about why I think they're helpful. So it's what's called an annotated bibliography. You may check that out if you're interested in other books. And I put a couple here at the end of this outline. So let's move on with this thing. Um, the hymns remind us that we can only approach God through the shed blood of Jesus. You remember I made that 
an important point at the beginning, that our worship is acceptable only through Jesus and his blood. And yet it really is surprising to me how few worship choruses, modern worship songs, celebrate that fact or make that point explicitly. I've been in many, many settings, unfortunately, where we'll sing lots of songs, but never is, the, is it communicated that our worship is made acceptable not because we just want to praise Jesus, but because of the shed blood of Jesus. We do not have a right to enter into God's presence because we want to, no matter how much we want to. And if you think about it, if you begin to think that it's your passion and your zeal that sort of gives you a reason to be in God's presence, what are you going to do when you don't feel zealous and passionate for the Lord? So it sort of puts you in this sort of catch-22, I think, that will really, really kill you. It's so important that the blood of Christ be celebrated in the songs that we sing, in the prayers that we pray, in the sermons that we preach, all that stuff. Um, so I, I just talked about that. Um, the hymns focus us more on God's promises than on upon our promises. And this is important. The way you grow as a Christian is your faith feeds on the Lord's promises. You do not grow by telling God over and over and over again what you want to do. You grow by resting in the promises of God, right? Didn't we just read that? In repentance and rest is your salvation. One time Jesus was asked in John chapter 6 by the disciples, what is the work we need to do, the work which God requires? And God said, Jesus said the work that God requires is to believe in the one he sent. Christian life is about believing before it's about working. It's about resting. And, and it's so important that we understand that, that we celebrate and that we hear again and again the Lord's promises to us. Um, and, and, you know, in, in um, one of Paul's letters to Corinthians, I think it's uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it says that as many promises as God has made, they are all yea and amen in Christ then when you look at the Bible, you should be looking for those promises. I have a, some old books at home. Uh, one of them is The I Wills of God. It's a great book, just a study of every place in the Bible that God says, I will. That would be a wonderful study for you to do sometime. The I Wills of God. And then there's another one this guy wrote, R.B. Power is his name. I think some of these have been reprinted. There's one on the I Wills of Christ and the I Wills of the Psalms. And, you know, it's very fascinating. There is a place for our will. Right? There is a place for our will. If you read the Westminster Confession of Faith, they have a chapter on oaths and making vows to the Lord as part of worship. We don't think about that very much in our day and age, but there, there, there really is a place for that. Um, but those vows and those wills that we make, sort of expressions of our will to God, are always a response to hearing what he's promised to do. And it's really important that we understand that. And I think the hymns help us with that. I think that the... Um, the hymns really help us remember that it's God's promises that matter. They help us to know and rely on the love God has for us. A lot of choruses, like a lot of modern evangelical theology, make a direct appeal to the will. They want to talk all about the decisions that we make. You know, a lot of people give the impression that the way you become a Christian is your decision. And they continue to sort of preach that the way you live the Christian life is by your willpower and your decisions. I would argue that that's not biblical. <coughs> And, and, and I think a lot of the praise choruses reflect that unbiblical understanding of modern American evangelicalism. But if you go back to the Bible, you'll find that it's full of calling us to cast ourselves 
on the promises of God rather than our own willpower and what we promise to do. This is the difference sort of between penance and repentance. You know, in repentance, we cast ourselves upon God's mercy. We say, Lord, I've sinned. Thank you for bringing that to, to my attention. Open my eyes to see that. Now, you know, forgive me based upon what Jesus did and help me to live. Penance is what a lot of us do. It's when we get caught in our sin and we say, Lord, forgive me. I promise I'll never, ever do this again. And Jesus has no part in that equation. There's so many people that live their Christian life that way. Oh, God, you caught me again. All right, let me go, and I promise never to do it again. So what you're basically saying is, God, forgive me based on my promise. And God will not do that, because he knows that you're lying. <laughs> See, Jesus is not part of that equation. And I think a lot of modern evangelicalism doesn't get that point, and I don't think we need any more songs that are confusing us about that point. Um, the hymns focuses upon God's promises more than ours. And I, I listed there for you Rock of Ages, great example. Um, could my zeal forever flow? That, you know, could my zeal no respite? No, that means no rest. Would no, if, even if I could be fired up for Jesus all the time, um, could my tears forever flow? Even if you could weep over your sin the way you need to, it still wouldn't have any effect in getting God to love you. God loves you based on what Jesus did, not based on your zeal, not based on your tears. C.H. Uh, Spurgeon says, goes so far as to say, do not make your own tears a rival for Christ. Don't make your wounds a rival for Christ's wounds, thinking that you can beat yourself up and God will have pity upon you. No. The wounds of Jesus are your only hope. Plead those. Um, hymns, I, I believe, really offer a more full emotional range of expression. And a lot of people are surprised that I say this because they often associate praise courses with emotion and hymns with a lack of emotion. But again, I would submit to you, if you do this study of the most popular praise courses, without a doubt, there are all kinds of emotional places that they do not go. Now, if I take the Psalms as my model for the kinds of emotions that we should be expressing in worship, then I find the praise courses really don't go to a lot of places we need to go. Um, Dan Allender, Christian counselor I really appreciate and recommend really any of his books that they have over there in the book table, said that if we sang more hymns, sorry, if we sang more psalms, we'd have a whole lot less need of Christian counseling. And I think that's true, and I think that the same could be said for the hymns, which I think the hymns actually do a better job of modeling the emotional range of the, hymn, of the psalms than modern praise courses do. And it's interesting, a lot of times, like, you'll sing a chorus that will say, you know, this is psalm such and such, but it's not really the whole psalm. It's just sort of the verses that we like. I remember one time, um, I, I was working with a girl who just had suffered horrific abuse, um, and we were going to read some scripture together, and I picked Psalm 139, because I remembered, oh yeah, this is that, you know, God's known me, you know, from my mother's womb, and he surrounds me, he's never going to leave me, all this kind of stuff. And I said, well, let's read that together. And I got about halfway through the psalm. I don't know if you know this, but that, I just remembered Amy Grant's little song, Everywhere I Go, you know, this, and I say, oh, isn't this a nice psalm? No, but the psalm starts talking about, you know, men abusing the psalmist and taking advantage of him. Um, it, you know, you start to read that song, you go, why does the psalmist want to flee from God's presence anyway? <laughs> it's not really sort of a really happy psalm. It's a song about, I want to get away from you, but you won't let me. And as the song goes on, you sort of say, here's why I want to get away. There are things happening to me that I can't control, and I hate it, and I wonder where you are. And I'm telling you, I would not have chosen to take her down that path 
but it was exactly where she needed to go. She needed to have language to say those things to God. There are things that we're so afraid to say to God. Isn't it so beautiful that we have God-inspired language to say it? John Calvin, in his um, commentary on the Psalms, in the introduction, says that in the Psalms we have an anatomy of the soul. And he says that, there are, that sometimes there are emotions that you don't even know you're feeling until you sing them. That the, that the Psalms help us get in touch with emotions that we don't even know that they're there. We don't know how to feel them. If you somebody who's been abused or suffered traumatically, um, often you're emotional, emotionally you just kind of shut down. And you don't really even know how to feel things. And the psalms and the hymns can be a really helpful thing. I recommend people use psalms and hymns in their devotions. Even if you're a terrible singer, it's okay. You know it's only in the last couple hundred years that people prayed silently anyway. We think that's just how you pray, right? Quiet time. In, in the Puritans, even back in the Puritans, only a couple hundred years ago, they didn't have quiet times. They had prayer closets where they yelled and screamed at God. They went up on top of their roofs, and people could hear them from miles away arguing with God. We have this idea that true prayer is sort of prayer where you sort of just speak it silently in your head, and then we wonder why we feel like we're just talking to ourselves. Um, um, hymns engage our imagination, our intellect, and our will together. Again, I think a lot of the praise courses go directly for the emotions. I think a lot of the gospel songs go directly for our will. Um, and I think good hymns give us rich language and help us think through sort of how this affects not only my will, but my affections, but my sense of what's beautiful, and th the understanding. I think they bring those together in, in a way that really reflects the scriptures. Um, I think they, use, they really appeal to the imagination more than, me, than, than I think uh, a lot of modern songs do. Um, now, again, I, you know, if you've ever worked in video or television or any of that kind of thing, I, I had an opportunity back when I worked in a recording studio to be involved in a couple TV commercial shoots. And, you know, for a 30-second TV commercial, they spend days sometimes really working on a shot, you know, framing a shot that you're going to see for a second or two. So just because something's short doesn't mean that a lot of work didn't go into it. Okay? I'm not suggesting that. And sometimes it's a really beautiful picture. Um, but it tends to be sort of here and then it's gone. Um, the, the hymns, I think, do seem to, to use richer, in a sense, language in general, because, just because they have more time to sort of develop an idea or a thought or a metaphor. Um, I do think, and I'll just tell you, if you're in a church or in a, in a ministry group where you sing a lot of choruses, I would suggest trying this. I refer back to Charles Spurgeon. The way he often preached is different than your RUF ministers preach. Your RUF ministers generally take a passage of scripture and exegete it, go through it. Spurgeon would usually read a passage of scripture in the service, and he would make little running comments, as he did. But then he would preach from one verse, and sometimes even one phrase of a verse. And so he might have a sermon that was, Jesus loves sinners. And his first point would be, Jesus loves sinners. And his second point would be, Jesus loves sinners. And his third point would be, Jesus loves sinners. Now see, Jesus loves sinners is a pretty simple idea, but he could go off for quite a while <laughs> on that. And, and so what I would say is if you're singing, you find yourself in a situation where you're singing the same line over and over again, maybe try and think of it that way. You can still meditate on it. What you don't want to do is just sort of sing it mindlessly, but sort of use it as a vehicle for meditation. Maybe the first couple times, think about what does it mean that Jesus loves sinners? Jesus. Who is Jesus? 
Um, Jesus loves sinners. He doesn't just tolerate sinners. He's not disappointed with his children. He's not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus loves sinners. Imagine the kind of people that Jesus loves. He doesn't love people that pick themselves up by their bootstraps, clean themselves off, and then approach him. He loves sinners while they're still sinners. As long as they are still sinners, right? So, you know, I think the hymns, again, help take us by the hand and, and lead us through that. But, you know, if you're somebody who leads worship and you have an opportunity to lead and you use choruses, teach people how to, to sing them in a way that they can learn how to meditate like that. I think it would be really helpful. Um, like I said, hymns broaden our range of metaphors. Um, that book that I mentioned for you, um, The Imaginative World of the Reformation, Peter Matheson, there's the reference to that. He says, when your metaphors change, your world changes with them. I think that's interesting to think about. Um, and I also think that postmodern people think more in terms of metaphor and image and less in terms of logical argument. And while, you know, I love systematic theology, I find in the last 10 years my heart has been engaged more by theological poetry than just sort of straight up um, systematic theology. And again, I just, you know, reference you to C.S. Lewis's point about the kind of language that God uses to describe himself. Again, I'm not opposed to using theological terms that help bring a certain amount of precision to what we're talking about, but beware if you think you've fully captured the thought because you're able to put sort of a pseudo-scientific theological term to it. Okay? Um, there is something about sort of the language of on Christ the solid rock I stand. And you could say Christ is faithful. But it, it just, I don't know, it doesn't sort of tend your imagination soaring the way it does to talk about Christ being a solid rock. And so I, I think that God really wants our imagination more engaged. Um, not only, I think, I had a professor at seminary, Dan Doriani, who used to talk about, you know, the problem with legalism, one of the problems with legalism, is it really gives no room for the imagination to soar. It, it just sort of basically says, okay, what God wants me to do is this, this, and this, and it's all spelled out for me. But in reality, what God calls you to is heroic obedience. He doesn't just give you a list of things to do and say, check these things off. He says, live for God's glory in every aspect of life. And that's going to cause you to think and pray and cry out and say, Lord, help. And I think the hymns help sort of stir up our imagination. I think it's sort of ironic to me that in a lot of ways, a lot of aspects of life, our imaginations are you know, running wild and free, but it doesn't seem that the imagination has any place in worship. I think the hymns really help engage our imagination and begin to teach us how to use the imagination in the Christian life. I think it's an important thing. Um, hymns are great art, and I think art has a way of sneaking in the back door uh, and surprising you. Um, and I think, again, it's one of the reasons that hymns are really helpful. And then I, I think, I've, I've talked about this already, that hymns tell a story and they walk us through the gospel. They take us somewhere, take us on a journey. And I really, this is where I really like to, to bring out sometimes the stories of the hymn writers. And again, the best book I know on that topic is Faith Cook. Her book, Our Hymn Writers and Their Hymns. They had it over there. I think they've sold all of them now, but you can look it up on Amazon, Faith Cook, C-O-O-K. Um, I, I, for instance, Ann Steele. I love to tell people the story of Ann Steele. We're going to sing Dear Refuge in My Weary Soul tonight. This is a woman who suffered terribly. She lived in a little village in England in the 1700s. Um, she, her mom died when she was two or three. So 
so she grew up without her mom. Eventually, she got a stepmom, and they had a pretty good relationship, though at times it was rather rocky, and her relationship with her stepsister was really rocky. Um, she, at one point, was engaged, it seems, and her fiancé drowned. Now, I, I used to tell the story it was the day before her wedding. I think that's a little kind of um, apocryphal addition to the story to make it seem more dramatic. Um, but she did suffer a lot. She had malaria. Now, I don't, nobody here has had malaria, I hope. Um, but in the days before we had any treatments for malaria, you know, malaria would sort of come and go, and it would bring these sort of um, hallucinations and fevers. And, you know, she struggled with that really her whole life. Once you get it, you've got it, okay? Um, she was bedridden a lot of the time. She never did marry. Anyway, she wrote some of the most amazing hymns about suffering. That, you know, and most of them got dropped out of the hymnals in the 20th century. Her hymns were incredibly popular in the 1800s. It's hard to find any of them in any hymnals now. At one point, she really is the most prolific Baptist hymn writer. She's the first female hymn writer. There's so many reasons why she's an important hymn writer. There was a, a Episcopal church in Boston in the 1800s that something like, you know, almost a half of the hymns in that hymnal were her hymns. And now we don't sing her hymns anymore. Um, but I find when I tell people about this story, I say, try this on. Dear refuge of my weary soul. Is that where you feel? Is that what you feel? Can you identify with that? Isn't it good to know that there's a woman who lived 300 years ago in an English village who experienced the same kind of struggles that you're experiencing? And she found God faithful in the midst of that. See, I think college students are really anxious to know that this Christianity is not just a product that's been cleverly marketed to us. I want to know that this thing has roots to it, that it's bigger than just my generation, that it's bigger than just something I chose to buy. I think it's really important because I think in so many ways, one of the messages that's been preached to you by this culture is that you are what you choose to purchase. You know, we try to find our distinctiveness in the clothes we wear or the clothes we find at thrift stores. That would be my students. I was you know, like to chide them a little bit and say, you think that you're, you know, sort of developing this distinctive identity by going to thrift stores and buying clothes, but you all buy the same clothes, um, so much so that Urban Outfitters can market thrift store t-shirts and know that there's going to be a market for them. Um, and now even Target's gotten on the bandwagon, um, sort of reprinting all these kind of things that people would pay a lot of money in vintage clothing stores for. Um, listen, don't put your hope in thinking that you can sort of identify yourself by what you choose to purchase. And yet that's, kind of the message of advertising. You are what you choose. It's pretty difficult to bring that worldview to the Bible and make sense of it, because the Bible says you are what God chose to make of you. Um, so, you know, it, I think it's, it's helpful, again, to sort of go back and see how did this woman who was a Christian 300 years ago, how did she think about this stuff? Very differently than we did. She did not assume that if suffering was in her life, that the, the thing that God wanted her to do was to use any way possible to get out of it. She assumed that God wanted her to sit in that and that maybe he actually was trying to reach her through her pain. As C.S. Lewis says, pain is like a megaphone that God shouts to us through our pain. Christians for most of history have believed that and thought that. Christians in our day don't really believe that. They may say they do, but they don't really. Um... And so I find it really helpful to kind of look at Christianity and look at the Christian experience of people who lived um, in very different settings than we did. Um, fi finally, um, where are we at here? 
uh, beware of worshiping tradition and hymns. I hope I don't have to say that. Um, there are a lot of really horrible hymns out there. Um, I think there's a lot of great hymns that have dropped out of use. Um, I think a lot of people, I, I meet students who've grown up in churches where they've never sung hymns. I've, I meet other people who may have sung hymns, but they know maybe 10 hymns. And there's so many wonderful hymns, but there's a lot of terrible ones too. A lot of those have dropped out of use. Now, I think that's one of the advantages of sort of sort of drawing from the hymn tradition is a lot of the really bad stuff's dropped out of use. But if you start going poking around in these old hymnals, you'll find a lot of really bad stuff. Um, so hymns are not perfect by any means. Um, and there's a lot of good praise choruses. Um, again, if I had more time to, to sort of listen to, to all that's being done in that genre, I'm sure I would find a lot more examples. But I love things like um, Beautiful Scandalous Night. That to me is a great example of a, of a modern praise chorus that has some development to it. It also really sort of talks about sort of this paradoxical truth that the night in which Jesus was betrayed was beautiful and scandalous at the same time. I, I, I love that. Um, okay, thoughts about hymns? Otherwise, I'm going to sort of go through some of these questions. I know I've hit some of them, but I've got time, I think, to hit some of the ones that we haven't. But anybody, questions on any of that hymn stuff first? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would uh, a couple things. One, I would I would raise the discussion with them um, about what they think worship is to be about. If they think they're too wordy and too complicated, chances are somewhere they've picked up the idea that true worship, sort of your mind is not really engaged, but your mind you're able to leave your mind. So I think that you're going to have a sort of a, dis a misunderstanding or a, a disagreement about the heart of worship. Is the heart of worship involve intellectual engagement or not? Um, I'm like C.S. Lewis. He said, I always, you know, you know, found like devotional books really shallow and they didn't do anything for me, is what Lewis says. But give me a thick theological tome and a pipe and I find my spirit soars. You know? <laughs> now, not everybody's like that. Um, but I, I, I do think, you know, our generation could do with more thinking big thoughts about God. Now, I think one way that you can help them ease them into that is to, you know, maybe like explain a line here or there, to have, to maybe put choruses in some hymns, like In Can It Be and Arise My Soul Arise. Some of those, we've put choruses in, or some, like some of the passion hymns, right? They've taken traditional hymns and then they've put kind of a chorus to it. So there's sort of a place where people come back and rest. It maybe is a sort of a way of sort of reaching people where they are and trying to draw them forward. Um, I also think that, you know, it's good, like when you think about your RUF meeting over the course of a year, to think about what are maybe 25, 30 hymns that we're going to sing that we're going to repeat a couple times. Um, I grew up at a church where we sang probably five or six different hymns every Sunday, and they were all obscure. So it was like every Sunday you're trying to learn a new tune and read these complicated words, and you never really got comfortable with it. Um, and then I've also been at a church where we sang maybe half a dozen hymns, and, you know, those are the only hymns we ever sang. I think somewhere in between would be really helpful to sort of have a canon of hymns. And it might even change from year to year, but to talk with your campus minister, what are you going to preach on in the fall and the spring? And are there some hymns that would really help uh, maybe be theme songs for that series? Um, and, and try not to just have all brand new songs every week for people. 
and then encourage them. You know, you can get like some CDs and actually start to listen to the music on your own. Um, I think now we have sort of this possibility where you don't have to introduce, teach a song necessarily um, by debuting it in the meeting. You could say to, you could send out an email to your RUF group and say, "We're going to do this song this coming week." You may not know it. Go to this link on the RUF Handbook online and listen to it. And so when you show up, you'll have heard it before. That's kind of a new thing, but I think technology, especially with college students, makes that very possible. Um, go hear a clip of this song. You know, there's lots of places where you can hear clips of the Red Mountain CDs or the Indelible Gray CDs or some of the other RUF CDs. And people can kind of learn the music. It's interesting to me, I, even like first, you know, first RUF meeting of the year, I can know that if I do songs off that first Indelible Gray CD, most of the people in there have heard those songs. That's, that's pretty crazy. I used to, you know, five, six years ago, I would have to teach all these songs at the beginning of the year to everybody. Um, so I, I think technology can, can help with that regard. All right, let me jump into some of these questions. Um, some of them I think I've already addressed. Biblical worship versus feel-good worship. Um, worship shouldn't always feel bad, but sometimes it should. Um, you know, biblical worship is much more than just emotional buzz. I think I've talked about that enough. Reform verse, worship versus the rest of the world. I think there are things that reform people can learn from all different worship traditions. And I'd highly recommend a series of lectures that Tim Keller gave at Christ Community Church on worship, where he talked about how what he suggests is inhabit one tradition and really understand your tradition and why you do what you do, but then borrow the best from all the other traditions. Reformed people tend not to be very good about prayer. Catholics understand prayer in, in, in some really rich ways. They sometimes don't bring the gospel into meditation and prayer. So, you know, borrow some of that, but sort of integrate it with your tradition. Some of the, you know, Mennonite traditions are much better with social justice and connecting worship to changing the world. Um, borrow from that stuff. Um, and so he has some great lectures. You can get them at ChristCommunity.org. And um, you can order those, I think, as tapes or probably a CD. Um, highly recommend. I don't think he's given that material anywhere else. It's not in print anywhere. Um, but he gave those lectures there, and I highly recommend that. Um, a, a good book about reform worship is Hughes Oliphant Old. He has a little book, um, Reformed Worship. I've been carrying it around with me. Do I still have it? Yeah. It's uh, Guides to the Reformed Tradition. It's just called Worship by Hughes Oliphant Old. It's very helpful. Another book um, that he has, it's a, it's a much thicker book, and it's really more for specialists, I guess, but it's called The Patristic Roots of Reformed Worship. And he makes the point that people like Luther and Calvin were very self-consciously trying to go back to the early church in their worship and what they were doing. They were trying to strip all the medieval um, sort of distortions that they thought had happened during the Middle Ages but they weren't trying to reinvent the wheel. They really wanted to go back to the early church worship, and they were very self-conscious about that. A lot of people don't know that. A lot of people think that, you know, we need to go back to the Catholic Church or the Greek Orthodox Church or the Anglican Church if we really want to stretch back to the early church tradition. But Luther and Calvin uh, would argue that what the, this, you know, Reformed liturgies are getting back to the early church, stripped of the distortions of the gospel that had happened in the Middle Ages. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, you might check that out. There's a guy, James White, who's at Notre Dame, who's written a number of books on the history of worship, and his stuff is really great. Um, even in Reformed worship, there's really two competing schools. There's people who follow Calvin and people who follow Zwingli. The people who follow Zwingli tend to be the English Puritans and a lot of American Presbyterians, 
they emphasize really the intellectual thing. They're very, really uncomfortable with sort of uh, emotional engagement. Um, they want everything to be as simple and as plain as possible. Okay, uh, Zwingli himself didn't even want music in the service, and he wanted the Lord's Supper once a year because he thought if you did it more often, it would sort of lose its specialness. Calvin, on the other hand, um, really is much more comfortable with mystery, much more, much more interested in the sacraments, thinks you should have the sacraments whenever you preach, at least once a week. Um, and I think there's a lot of things we can learn from Calvin. I think a lot of things that connect more to what it means to be fully human. Calvin gets it more than I think the English Puritans do. And um, there's a book called Covenantal Worship by Gore, G-O-R-E, where he talks about this and, and sort of argues that Calvin gets this stuff better than the Puritans, and that even what you have in the Westminster Confession of Faith, the way it describes the regular principle, is more strict than the Puritans themselves really even practiced it. So what you have in the Westminster Confession of Faith, a lot of you don't care, but for those of you who do, you have sort of the Puritans stating their views on worship at the end of almost 100 years of debating with the Anglicans. And so as that debate progressed, people, both, both sides got more extreme in the way they said things. But the Westminster guys that did the Westminster Confession of Faith also did a thing called a directory of worship that is less hardcore than the statements they make in the Confession of Faith. In practice, they're not as extreme as they state the regular principle, is the point. The Presbyterian way has always been to have a directory of worship rather than a set prayer book. The Anglican and the Catholic Church sort of have a word-by-word -word written out, here's what you do. And then free churches, sort of, everything is sort of spontaneous. There's no set prayers or anything. But the, the Presbyterians had sort of an in-between. We do want a basic guide, but yet there's room for flexibility and um, innovation sort of within that framework. All right? If you want to read more about that stuff, and especially Zwingli versus um, Calvin, there's this book, D.A. Carson's book on worship called Worship by the Book. It's really great, and Tim Keller's um, stuff in this book is really helpful in that regard. Um, let me go through here. Worship in the emerging church, what did I say? I think there's some good things. I think the emerging church is helping react against, in a helpful way, reacting against some of the distortions of modernism that I think have sort of stripped what it means to be fully human. But I think there's some concerns I have about the emerging church. And again, I draw you to my lecture on the emerging church uh, at fbts.edu, look for the um, Worship Institute. Um, D.A. Carson's book on the emerging church, I think is really helpful. Um, let's see, feeling the Holy Spirit at work versus emotionalism. I think I've talked about that. The Holy Spirit does not exist just to generate pure emotion, but to convince you that you're a son and daughter of God and to focus you on Jesus and him crucified. So if the Holy Spirit's at work, that's what's going to happen. Biblically speaking, prayer, sacraments, reading the word and worship, all that stuff, it's important you understand worship is not just the singing. People all the time say, man, we had a great worship this morning uh, after church. And I say, well, you know, you mean the music? They generally mean I like the music. Worship is a lot bigger than that, okay? Um, effort and excellence in planning services. We should work hard at it. We should um, believe that the Holy Spirit can be involved in our planning, not just in the executing of the service, okay? Um, but I think, like anything, you know, good things can become idols. And we can so, you know, be commit, you know, God is a God of order tends to be the, the, the text that Presbyterians like the most. And we can be so excited about order 
that we don't have any room for sort of God breaking in. I think it's hard, too, when you have multiple services where you're on a much stricter timetable or if you have a service that's televised or on the radio. It makes it really hard to have any kind of leeway. Um, I, I would avoid it if I could. I would try to avoid all that because I think it's great to have some flexibility and spontaneity in the worship service. Um, and I think you should even, even to say sort of like little, little poignant things in between songs, you should, you should plan those out, especially if you're not sort of a gifted kind of think on your feet kind of person. If you're leading worship in your RUF group, it's okay to plan out, here, I'm going to say something about this hymn, and here's what I'm going to say. To say something sort of quick and succinctly requires more preparation than just sort of to kind of go off for 20 minutes about something, which is why I always run, run over when I talk. Um, the value of liturgy, I think, again, liturgy is, is really helpful. The irony about the, the word liturgy is liturgy literally means the work of the people. But in a lot of settings, liturgy has been the performance of the priest. And it shouldn't be that way. And there's a lot of sort of modern liturgical scholars who are emphasizing how liturgy is a conscious way to involve the people. In a lot of, in a lot of our churches, evangelical churches, um, people complain about entertainment worship and they complain about that with regard to the music and worship bands and all that, but it's already been worship entertainment. It's already been people watching the minister sort of do the dog and pony show, even before they got a praise band in a lot of places. Um, there really is a place for the people being involved in worship. Calvin, you know, didn't even have a choir. Presbyterians have been real opposed to choirs for a long time. Calvin sort of had a, a school where he taught all the young people how to sing the songs, and then they were dispersed throughout the congregation, so that the congregation was the choir, but they had people who kind of knew the songs and would help lead everybody. Um, when you're in your RUF group, don't just sit, you know, with your friends up in the front of the room. You know, spread out so that people can, can you know, that maybe don't know the song so well, especially in the back, can, can hear you sing. Sing loud. Sing boldly. Don't be so shy and so caught up about your own... Um, stuff. History of worship, well, I wish there was time to talk about it. There's so many interesting things in the history of music, worship. I'll mention one other book. Um, this is called The Story of Christian Music by Andrew Wilson Dixon. There's a hyphen between Wilson and Dixon. From Gregorian Jant to Black Gospel, an illustrated guide to all the major traditions of music in worship. This is a really fun book. It's like a, kind of like a textbook, I guess, but it's, it's actually pretty interesting to read. Um, with lots of little anecdotes and pictures. Um, you might find that helpful. Again, James White's stuff on the history of worship is really helpful. Um, there's a lot of books on the history of early church worship. Um, it's a huge, huge area of study. One, of the, one, of the best, one other book on hymnody that I'll mention to you is by a guy named Foote, F-O-O-T-E, and it's called Three Centuries of American Hymnody. It's really the only good book on the history of American hymnody and sort of developments between worship in America, if you're interested in that sort of thing. Um, John Whitfleet's book that's over there, Sing with Understanding, has some really helpful stuff on worship, um, some great essays. But anyway, wish there was more time. Thanks for coming. Um, there, again, there's lots of other resources about this stuff at igracemusic.com. Um, we just redesigned that website, and so you should be able to find stuff more easily now under resources. Look at my blog. Sometimes I'll sort of post links to stuff that I think is helpful. Y'all been good, been attentive. Thank you. Um,